He is risen. Amen. Thank you, Adam, Orchestra Choir, for leading us in worship, preparing us for worship through the preaching of God's Word. I want to thank the Carpenters for Christ for serving us so well, faithfully this morning, as good a breakfast as you'll find in the country. Amen. Yes, yeah. And they got up here really early. And so if you see a Carpenters for Christ walking around, just hug them for us. It was a wonderful time of fellowship. We had a wonderful uh, service this morning. And I am looking forward to this service as well. If you would look with me in Matthew 28, we're departing from John uh, for this day. In verse 1 of Matthew 28, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him... The guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we can only approach you this morning. We only desire to approach you because we have a Messiah who was crucified and yet has been raised from the grave. And your church is the great sign that Christ has been raised. It's a miracle of his resurrection power. Lord, today as we consider this familiar passage, I pray that every believer here would believe more. And I pray that every person here who's never trusted in Jesus today, they would believe in the crucified yet resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. TV host Larry King, as many of you know, died last year at the age of 87. I think it was on January the the 23rd. And interestingly, after he died, several publications published this question. They ran this story with the question, was Larry King cryogenically frozen after his death? I certainly hope they don't ask that question after I die. But that was a question that was raised after King died. Now, what was behind this question? Well, a few years earlier... A reporter for the New York Times Magazine, Mark Labovich, had run an article, published an article where he had interviewed Larry King. And the title of the article was this, Off the Air, Larry King Prepares Himself for That Final Cancellation. Of course, it was a double entendre because it had nothing to do with his cancellation from TV. At the time of the interview, Larry King was age 81, and he was facing 
the inevitability of death, and he was obsessed with it. In fact, he would take four human growth hormone pills per day to prolong his life. King had arranged to have his body frozen and then thawed when researchers came up with a a cure for whatever killed him. The so-called technology is called cryonics. Maybe you've heard of that. Lebovich writes this, King told me later that the people behind cryonics are all nuts. But at least if he knows he will be frozen, he will die with a shred of hope. Others have no hope. Now in this article, King dismisses anyone who believes in God. Anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, anyone who believes in the afterlife, indeed, anyone who believes in the resurrection. And to be honest, he really didn't believe in cryonics either. That's why he thought they were all nuts. And that's why two years before his death and a few years after that interview, his family finally talked him out of freezing his body and so he died and unless Larry was born again before he died he died in to use his words hopelessness you know one of the the most important realities of the Christian faith is the drastic contrast that it presents between the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ and him raised from the grave and the fact that there is no other hope. There is no other hope. As Mike Horton has so ably written, in spite of appearances, everything outside of Christ is dead and everything in Christ is alive. Isn't that a great point? Everything outside of Christ is dead. What does that mean? God's wrath is on this sin-stained created order. Sin has entered the world, and the curse of sin and death is on the created order. So everything outside of Christ is dead. But in Jesus, we have, through his resurrection, the sphere of life and hope and salvation. But because the resurrection of Jesus is the only hope of the world, it stands to reason there will be an all-out war on its truthfulness. And we see that even in our passage today. Indeed, before we get to chapter 28, we see a paranoid plan formulated by the religious leaders of the day. Look with me in verse 62 of Matthew 27. The next day, that is after the day of preparation. Now, the day of preparation was the day preparing for Sabbath. Okay? And so this is Saturday. After the day of preparation, this is the day in which Jesus is buried in the tomb. The chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. There was no love lost. 
But the enemy of my enemy is strangely my friend, right? And said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Now, on at least three different occasions in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, Jesus had foretold his death and his resurrection on the third day. Now, what's remarkable is his, his disciples consistently missed it. Consistently. But ironically, his enemies here seemed to know what he was saying. And that speaks to the reliability of this gospel. After all, who wrote it? One of his 12 disciples. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples, and Matthew is writing what happened. He's having to concede. These, these religious leaders seem to have gotten it better and more quickly than, than we did. Um, but the opponents assumed that the disciples did understand. Now, to be clear, these religious leaders did not believe that Jesus would actually be raised from the grave. Why? Now, you hear somebody say today, well, uh, these, these kind of miraculous things happened before the scientific age. Now, we're not naive. We, we, we live in the time of scientific enlightenment. We know these kind of things don't happen today. The reality is resurrections didn't happen then either. And so these religious leaders did not believe that Jesus was actually going to be raised from the grave. That's why they call him uh, in this passage an imposter. But they feared that the disciples might attempt some kind of mock resurrection by stealing his body. But their response, ironically, is turned on its head because their precautions would actually end up reinforcing the reality that Jesus indeed has been raised bodily from the dead. Indeed, because of their actions, Matthew explicitly addresses the lie that says Jesus' disciples stole the body. Which has been, by the way, a common response to the resurrection for 2,000 years. But it's an untenable, in fact, impossible theory. For one, these disciples were not in the mindset to pull off such an act. They were, to be frank, scaredy cats. They had fled the scene, Matthew 27. Matthew writes about that. He has to concede that he was, he was scared. And he was not willing to stand there for his, his Savior. He had fled the scene along with the other disciples. And they were also in despair. This morning, Greg read from Luke 24. And you have these two disciples on the, the road to Emmaus, and they are in despair because they had believed, they thought falsely that Jesus was Messiah. But they realized that dead messiahs do no one any good. They did not understand the resurrection. They were oblivious to the promise of resurrection. It had never happened before. Second, the authorities had appointed professional trained guards at the tomb. There's no way this group of fishermen 
and a tax collector could have pulled off this kind of ploy. Third, if they did steal the body, 10 of the original 12 disciples would have ended up dying for a lie. In fact, one of the 12 was exiled and 10 of the 12 were martyred. Who dies for a lie that they willing they 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 know? And related to that, what transformed these cowards into the kind of men who would die for their faith? They had seen Christ raised from the grave. Chuck Colson writes and uh, for those of you that don't know Chuck Colson, uh, younger generation, he was the hatchet man for Richard Nixon and went to prison for it. But when he was in prison, he was born again. He wrote a very famous, best-selling book, Born Again. And here's what he writes. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead... Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible and what happened is that these as these conspirators will learn that in spite of their security measures and and we're going to see this this language of secure security several times all of them will prove to be ineffective and all they had to do was secure one tomb for three days and that would have absolutely quenched this notion that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But note the irony. They call Jesus the imposter throughout this text, and yet they are plotting and they are planning. Verse 64, therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. Note again the word secure. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And so the chapter ends with these Jewish leaders secure and satisfied. But here's the point. There is no security with scoffers. Again, In spite of appearances, everything outside of Christ is dead. Everything in Christ is alive. Proverbs 3 says, towards the scornful, he is scornful. That brings us to the heart of our passage. They have plotted, they have planned, but to no avail. In the second part of this passage, we see a glorious plan fulfilled. Look with me in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, so this is Sunday morning, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see 
the tomb. And behold, now I want you to notice this word behold, or the word see, is found several times in this passage. Because there's no, there's no steps or principles to obey here. Matthew wants us to behold. He wants you to see. He wants you to behold with the eyes of faith. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Now, why would they be afraid? Well, there's persecution has erupted, starting with the death of Jesus. And men aren't raised from the dead, generally speaking. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now, why was he crucified? He was crucified for our sins. God's judgment fell on him. That's why he was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. And so when Jesus was crucified, there were several loyal women who stayed with him until the end. No one threw his body away. Um, in fact, a wealthy believer, another gospel tells us, that Joseph of Arimathea compromised his position as a national leader, and he buried him in his own tomb. And so these women knew where the tomb was. What's interesting is that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us that it was women who first discovered that the tomb was empty and that the resurrected Christ indeed was alive. He appeared first to the women. Now, why is that important? I think it's very important. First of all, women were not considered reliable witnesses in first century Judaism. It's not that the Bible has a low view of women. The culture at the time did. In fact, the culture at the time had an unbiblical view of women. But as a result, a woman's testimony would not have stood in a court of law. In fact, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, claims that the Old Testament asserts from women no evidence can be accepted. Of course, that didn't come from the Old Testament. It came from their fallen tradition. In fact, Celsus was a, was a famous philosopher who hated Christianity. He invested his adult years trying to expose uh, the fallacy of the Christian faith. And in one of his writings, he, he says, this is, in fact, his most important argument against Christianity. Get this. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And that was his argument. Christianity can't be true because the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. And you can't count their testimony in any kind of court of law. But what's remarkable is actually the opposite case. 
is proven because the first witnesses were women. If the gospel writers were making these stories up to spearhead their movement, they would have never written women into the story as the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. So why did they do that? Because that's what happened. It's what happened. And so they wrote what happened. Even with the potential of being criticized as presenting them as the first witnesses. And when these women arrived at the tomb, they found the stone had been rolled away by an earthquake. And this earthquake had really been caused, it says, by an angel of the Lord who came down from heaven. The angel went and and rolled away the stone from the tomb. Did he roll away the stone so Jesus could walk out? No. He rolled away the stone so that they could walk in. But this notion that an angel would do this was not on the radar of these guards. Uh, they They could guard the tomb from humans, but they could not guard the tomb from angels sent from heaven. And so they became like dead men. But the angels' business here was not with the guards. The angels came to minister to the women. And he answered them, don't you be afraid. And he, they encourage, he encourages them by assuring them that he knows all about their mission. He says, you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen Notice, as he said. In other words, this was the plan. This was the plan all along. This was not a contingency plan. It wasn't plan B because plan A didn't work. It's plan A. Jesus had prophesied his own crucifixion and his resurrection. In fact, the Old Testament had prophesied his crucifixion. And his resurrection on the third day. In fact, that's why Messiah came. He didn't come to serve as a good example for us. He came to save us. He didn't come as our life coach. He came as our Savior. The resurrection and the crucifixion even before the resurrection was how God would save a people. And the angels... Um, The angel here backs up his words by inviting them, notice these two verbs, come and see. Come and see where he lay. Two very important verbs. When we gather as the people of God on Sunday, in a very real sense, that's what we're doing every time we come. Come and see. Come and see. Come and behold. Well, we see these verbs here. Um, You see, the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is all that he claimed to be as our great prophet, our great priest, and our great king. As king, he defeated our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. He defeated them by his crucifixion, satisfying God's wrath on our sin and being raised. 
He was raised as our king, our victorious king. He's also our priest who offered himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. In our natural state, we are alienated from God. He is the final sacrifice for sins. That's why you must trust in him. If you haven't trusted in him today, you must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great high priest who has offered the final sacrifice for sins. He's also our prophet. We see it even here. As he predicted his crucifixion and his resurrection on the third day. As our prophet, he reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Unfortunately, familiarity has not served us well in this text. In fact, uh, I know that in our Sunday school classes, many of them today, you studied Matthew 28. And those of you that are visiting with us, you're familiar with Matthew 28, perhaps. All of us are in some ways, or at least most of us, are familiar with Matthew 28. And it's easy for familiarity to breed a kind of boredom or dullness with this passage. But notice, the Son of God had lay dead in a tomb. I mean, that's remarkable. Dead in a tomb. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached a sermon on this passage one time. And he brought out five crucial insights to awaken us from our familiarity and our familiarity-induced slumbers. First point he makes, think about the condescension of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does condescension mean? He went low. He went low for us. He was the eternal king of glory, and he made himself of no reputation and took the form of a servant and came in the likeness of man, and he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, the death of the cross. Secondly, we see with the crucifixion of Jesus the horror of sin. It was our sin that put him there. Don't take your sin lightly. Look at the tomb and recognize. The tomb where the Son of God was buried. Look at the cross and recognize where the Son of God was crucified. What your sin deserves. That sin that you commit in private when no one is watching. You think no one's watching. This is what your sin deserves. It was our sin that put him there. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. Think about this. The Son of God was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. For the sins that we commit, the sins that we don't think twice about, the sins that we refuse to repent of, the sins that we rationalize, He was pierced for our iniquities. A third point that Spurgeon makes about the tomb and Christ in the tomb is it reminds us that we too will die. We too will die unless Christ returns first. The tomb symbolizes our mortality and it warns that that day is coming. Fourth, we must see Inside the tomb. And inside that tomb we see 
for everyone who would believe, Jesus has conquered death. The tomb is empty. He has conquered sin, death, and the devil by his resurrection from the grave. That's why the angel says, come and see. Fifth and finally, we as believers will also rise as Jesus did. When he returns, our bodies will be raised from the grave and united to our souls. Until that day, we rise spiritually. That's what it means to be born again. You must be born again. And the new birth is a spiritual resurrection. So just as Jesus was raised from the grave, when we're born again, we are raised spiritually. The Bible describes us as being dead in our trespasses and sins. That's our condition. Every person's condition. Dead in our trespasses and sins. And God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive even when we are dead. It is by grace we have been saved. And that resurrection power that is grounded by the resurrection of Christ is what comes to bear on the sinner's heart. Now, from reassuring the ladies, the angel here turns to commissioning them. I love this, and I know you love this as a great commission church. Verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So notice how many words be uh, see and behold. Very important. But I want you to note the order. Verse 6, come and see. And here in verse 7, go and tell. That's always the order. What we see and what stirs us when we see, we go and tell. It's just a reflex action. You go to a ball game. And you see something that stirs you at that ball game, you go and tell. No one has to twist your arm. What we see as glorious, we go and tell others. In other words, going and telling is the reflex action of coming and see. That's why it's so important when we gather that your heart is prepared to see. To see with the eyes of faith. The glory of God in the face of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Well, look in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. This is a healthy fear. This is a reverential fear, a filial fear. This is my prayer for all of us when we leave every worship service. That we would leave the worship service with fear and great joy. That is my heart's cry for all of us. And they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, there's that word again. Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. These women had been the last ones at the cross... They had been the first ones at the empty tomb, and now they are the first ones to see the resurrected Lord. There's no way these disciples write this 
unless it's true. Unless it's true. But now as they went on their way to do as the angel said, Jesus is standing there before them, and they came to him, and look, notice, they took hold of his feet. Now that's remarkable language. So they're worshiping him, which reflects that he is God, a very God. Jesus Christ is the eternally begotten of the Father, eternally generated of the Father. God, a very God, equal in essence and power and glory and authority to the Father for all eternity. They are worshiping, but they took hold of his feet. He is as much man as he is God. This is the victorious God-man who's been raised for us and our salvation. But notice in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. And so he accepted their worship. And he repeats the angel's command, don't be afraid. And just as the angel had done, he told them to take that good news to his followers. Evangelism is the normal response to experiencing and to seeing the risen Christ. If we're not evangelizing, there's something unhealthy about our spiritual state. And I say that to myself as much as I say it to anyone. This is the first command given to them. Come and see, go and tell. That's the normal life of faith. Notice in verses 11 to 15 to close. Even as all this is going on, a paranoid plan has been formulated, a glorious plan fulfilled, a foolish plan is failing before our very eyes. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while he, we were asleep. No one could believe that. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Again, all they had to do was guard one tomb for three days, and this narrative would have been put down forever. One problem, God intervened. God intervened and broke in. As John Christensen famously wrote, Behold, a seal, a stone, and a watch, and they were not able to hold him. And it's ironic, after all of their precautions to ensure the body was not stolen, they themselves now spread reports that it indeed been, had been stolen. And so they seek to cover up the resurrection by advancing the very story they all wanted to prevent. God had turned it on its head. But it also reveals the hardness of their hearts. In chapter 12, they had asked Jesus to show them a sign. And he said, the only sign that I'll give you is the resurrection. And here... They were raised, and they knew deep down that body had not been stolen, but they refused to believe. But the reason the resurrection has been under attack since that day 
is that it's the ground for every salvation in the history of the world. If you are saved here today, it's because Jesus has been raised from the grave. In 1 Peter 1, it says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you are born again today, it's because Jesus Christ has been raised from the grave. It's the only way to make sense of the fact that you are a follower of Christ. But we also know this resurrection is the ground of our hope, both in the age to come and in this present age. Because Peter will go on and say, you have now in the resurrection an inheritance that cannot perish. What does that mean? Death can't touch it. It cannot spoil. What does that mean? Sin can't touch it. And it cannot fade. What does that mean? Time cannot touch it. You have an inheritance. And you have the down payment this morning of that inheritance by the Holy Spirit. But it also signals if you are saved today by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have God as your Father. He is invested in you. He is committed to you. He is committed to your good. Just as any father is committed to his son or daughter. You are a child of God. And the ground of your hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's also the ground of your sanctification. That's what Paul meant when he said, I have been crucified with Christ, yet it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. You get that? Christ lives within us by the Spirit. The resurrected Christ. That is the means of our growth in godliness. That means as a Christian, I am no longer under the dominion of sin. I am no longer under the penalty of sin. But I am no longer under the bondage of sin. Do you believe that? When it becomes to your besetting sin that you rationalize... Jesus is risen. Do you realize that? He is risen. When it comes to your difficult marriage that looks impossible, Jesus is risen. When it comes to that person that you find so difficult to love on your ball team, in your classroom, in your dorm, in your neighborhood, in your job, in your Sunday school class, Jesus is risen. When it comes to your lost loved one that you grieve over, that you lose sleep over, Jesus is risen. When it comes to your worries, when it comes to your anxieties, when it comes to your fears, Jesus is risen. When it comes to your own unbelief, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus is risen. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has been raised from the grave. Amen. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. Our faith is futile. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
But if Christ has been raised, and he has, it changes everything. It changes everything. And that's what we want to celebrate this morning as we close out our service at the table. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.